This is a talk by Joel titled "Listening to the Stones." Talk number six: Universal Sameness. Recorded October 2011 at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So let's make a quick review of what our inquiry has revealed so far. We began by examining the two sides of this veil of delusion that hides the non-dual reality from us: the subjective and the objective. And first, we looked at objects, and we looked to see if we could find any inherently existing, independent,、uh, continuously existing objects. And we looked, and we didn't find any. All we found was impermanent phenomena coming and going, coming and going. So then we turned around and we looked on the other side. We looked for the subject or the self that is the observer of all these、uh, objects or these phenomena that are arising and passing away. And we found here, likewise, there was no independently existing self. There was just phenomena arising and passing away. So. What we discovered is that even though all phenomena arise and pass, come and go, are impermanent, are empty of inherent existence, we did find some what that did not come and go, and that was consciousness itself. That through all this, there was this kind of space where all these phenomena rose and passed, but that never changed. That never rose. That never passed away. And then we looked more closely, and we found that every phenomena arises within this consciousness, and we never found anything outside it. And then we inquired further, and we found that the phenomena arising in this consciousness are actually inseparable from this consciousness in an asymmetric way. That we can have consciousness without <coughs> phenomena arising in it. As we do in dreamless sleep or deep samadhi or states like that, but we can never have phenomena arising without the consciousness in which it arises. So, in that sense, they're inseparable. We can't we can't take the stone out of the consciousness if the stone is going to be there. The stone can disappear from consciousness, but then there's no more stone. So, if there's phenomena we can identify with stone, it's always in consciousness. So that's where we are so far. So, moving forward, Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi, writes: "In so much as the cosmos is the cosmos, some parts of the cosmos preponderate over other parts, and disparity becomes manifest within it." So the idea is, when we look around, there are differences. Everywhere we look, there are differences, but. The relationship of Allah to all things is one relationship with no ranking in degrees. So,、uh, well, we just can look at our guru stones, and we can see that each one is different. Some are bigger, some are smaller, some are more symmetrical, some are odd shaped, some are smoother, some are rougher. Some have more colors. So right there, just at this level of stones, there's disparity. And then, of course, you know, all through our lives, there's disparity. We have、uh, all sorts of different kinds of evaluations of all the phenomena and the objects and stuff that we experience. But what he's saying is, 
in the cosmos, there's all this disparity and difference and so forth. But the relationship of all this stuff in the creation to the ground of creation, to Allah, is equal. So there's this kind of paradoxical situation. On a relative plane, we could say, yes, there's difference, there's disparity, there's different evaluations of things, but from the absolute point of view, it's all the same. No difference, no disparity. This is um, why Lady Soigel, a great Tibetan yogini, she says, in truth, whatever your technique, if you focus upon universal sameness, you practice true meditation. So she's getting at what is the essence of meditation here? That if we're doing meditation right, whatever kind of meditation we're doing, we should be becoming aware of what she calls universal sameness. Then the question is, what is it about all this phenomena here that is universally the same? And we've already heard Longchenpa say, all the phenomena which appear in various forms are the same in not existing in their true nature. So, we started off basically with this teaching, uh, the way the Buddhists put it, that everything is the same in being empty of inherent existence. This teaching of emptiness is half of the underlying meaning of universal sameness. Everything is the same in being empty of inherent existence. Now, having said that, this teaching of emptiness, we should say, is the negative way of putting this universal sameness. And particularly, Buddhists love the negative way because they know that if we try to put this in a positive way, how easily the mind grasps onto that and reifies it and tries to make a thing out of it. That's why the Buddhists avoid the term God like the play. Because, you know, people hear God and then, oh, it's a big daddy in the sky or however they conceive of it. And the next thing you know, you've got one giant thing among lots of little things. And that is not the mystic's view of ultimate reality at all. So Buddhists particularly don't like that, but there's the danger if we keep just using emptiness, emptiness, that people fall into a kind of nihilistic view of things. Well, it's just all empty. And so Buddhists are constantly having to reaffirm they don't mean that, and that this emptiness is full of creative capacity and the capacity for compassion and all that stuff. And even within Buddhism, there's differences of how this is presented. The Madhyamika school is very strict. They don't want to talk about anything but emptiness. And they even say emptiness is empty of any inherent existence and things like that. The Nyingma school, which I've quoted a lot of the teachers from the Nyingma school, they like this term Rigpa, which is translated as primordial awareness, which is very equivalent to what we mean by consciousness itself. So they do have some positive terms that are not just emptiness. So, if we look at this sameness, this universal sameness, yes, on the one hand, what that means is everything is the same in terms of being empty of any self-existence, inherent self-existence. But also, everything is universally the same in being 
equally an expression of the ground of reality, of Rigpa, of consciousness itself, of Allah, of God, of whatever other more positive term you want to use. And the analogy here is like uh, going to the movies and watching the, the forms on the screen. And the forms on the screen, if we get into the movie, seem to be people, to be environments, to be houses, trees, whatever. They seem to have inherent existence of their own. Now, if we're sane, we go to movies, we never lose track of the fact that they actually don't. That's how come we can enjoy the movie. But there are times when people uh, do lose track of that, and I've told this story many times, but it's worth repeating. I can remember when I was young, I don't know, seven or eight, and my mother took me to see The Wizard of Oz. And there's a scene in The Wizard of Oz where the wicked witch of the West is melting. And it just terrified me. I started screaming and crying, and she tried to calm me down. She couldn't. She had to take me out to the lobby. And what'd she say to me? It's just a movie, Joel. It's just a movie. See? And I'm up here, I want to say to you people, it's just a movie. It's okay, you know? Well, it was hard to get through to me. Actually, I finally got it, and then I learned to love movies, and even horror movies and stuff. Oh, they were really juicy. So, you know, we can be fooled even by a movie. But most of the time, we know that these people and these environments up there in the screen are empty of any inherent existence. But there's something else about them that's the same. They're all forms of light. And it doesn't matter if they are bright or dark or what color they are or anything like that, you know. Part of the movie might be a scene played out in front of a a granite mountain. It looks so solid and real. And then maybe we see that some wispy ghost drifting by that looks, you know, very unsubstantial. Well, one looks really substantial and one looks very unsubstantial. This is why Ibn Arabi says within the context of the cosmos, within the context of the movie, there's the disparity. But underlying it, there's no disparity. It's all light forms. So, we could say that just as light is the thing about all the forms in the movie that is universally the same, we could say consciousness or God or Allah is what underlies all these apparent different forms that we experience. Now, let's say we were deluded about a movie. We thought we were watching a solid manifestation of inherently existing things unfold on the screen. And we were sitting next to somebody who knew it was a movie, and they're trying to get us to see that it's all light forms. If they could get us to see that any one of those forms on the screen was a light form, we might have a chance of seeing that they're all light forms. If we could recognize it, you know, in the tree in the background, the little tree, and I got that, and I looked at the screen, I could see it's all made of light. So this is something we want to look for in individual appearances. We already heard Ananda Moyamai say, all names are God's names. Discover him in any particular form and you will finally come to see that all forms are expressions of the one. So she's talking about this universal sameness that underlies all this appearance. Zen master Suzuki Roshi says, When you understand one thing through and through, 
You understand everything. One thing through and through. And the Upanishads say, by knowing what one gold figure is made of, one knows what all gold figures are made of. So this is a universal teaching. This is not just a Buddhist teaching or a Hindu teaching or a Sufi teaching. You find this in all traditions. So, if we really knew what this stone was, we'd know what everything was. And that's part of what the stone is trying to teach us. If you can see my true nature, you've seen the true nature of everything. But, how are we going to discover this universal sameness? What can we do to start to unveil it? Well, Krishna gives us a clue in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, Who sees the same in all there is, whether pleasant or unpleasant, that yogi is supreme, I say. So, he's talking about universal sameness who sees the same and all that is, whether pleasant or unpleasant. Ah, here's the clue. That yogi, I say, is supreme. Because one of the reasons we see and emphasize disparity and duality and differences between things is because we see it all not just through the veil of thought, but the veil of thought charged with our desires and aversions, our grasping and our pushing away. So this judgment that is constantly going on about what's good and what's bad for me is constantly creating this sense of difference. So, you know, you can talk about the universal sameness of things, but boy, I'd rather have a Ferrari than a Ford. I mean, don't tell me they're all the same. If I offered you, what would you choose, huh? (laughs) You know, you could go to um, a chain restaurant, Burger King or something, or you could go to a restaurant that serves vegan diets and all that. Which would you choose? Well, I don't know about that one. (laughs) Uh, A bottle of Gallo wine or a wonderful Bordeaux? So this business of universal sameness, yeah, it sounds good, but it breaks down when we get out there in the world. Why? Because we're constantly reacting to things out of our desire and aversion and our perceived value judgments that we impose on things. That's better than that. So this is why Krishna is emphasizing we can see universal sameness, whether pleasant or unpleasant. Somehow we have to get beyond this valuation of things based on whether we like them or don't like them, whether we think they're pleasant or unpleasant. Here's Zen master Sing Song. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. Yes. Oh, I was just I was taking that to the point of making a decision whether I choose to eat a genetically modified tomato or a, uh, you know, one that grew out of Mike's garden. And the impact is, say, 
maybe the potentially deleterious impact on one's health by making a decision yeah. for the environment. We're not saying here that a genetically grown tomato and one that comes out of the garden are equally good for your health. You're considering things within the cosmos. And as Ibn Arabi said, one thing preponderates over another. There's disparity in the cosmos. And there's disparity of value in the cosmos. We're trying to now look at it from the God's eye point of view. And our trouble, by the way, is, as deluded human beings, we know how to look at it from a judgmental point of view, a dualistic point of view. That's not our problem. We miss the other side of it, the other dimension. One could imagine a world where everybody only can see things with God's eyes, and then we'd be sitting here doing practices. Can't you see there's a difference between the genetically altered tomato and the real one? And we'd be going out in the garden and tasting them, and we'd be studying, you know, all kinds of scientific experiments or what the data is and that. But that's not really our problem. So this is why we're looking at this universal sameness, because that's the thing we don't see. We, we know all about uh, making judgments and dualities and what's good for us and what's not good for us and all that stuff. So let's go back to Song Sen. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. So what he's suggesting is we have to practice detachment from our own desires and aversions. And practicing detachment from our own desires and aversions does not mean that the desires and the aversions won't arise. You can't stop them from arising. It's not up to you. It's not a choice whether desire or aversion arises. You've been conditioned for it. Conditioned at the biological level and then on top of that, the cultural level. The gate of freedom is the desire and the aversion arises, and then there is one thing you can, in a relative sense, do about it, and that is you can choose to act on it or not. And for the purposes of these practices, we want to choose not to. We want to choose not to because we want to see what happens when our attention remains undistracted by this movement of grasping or pushing away, what could we see in that moment of undistraction? So, detachment never means trying to push away either desire or aversion. That would be aversion. That would be aversion to aversion and aversion to desire. That is not neither grasping nor pushing away. We have to always remember this. In a spiritual context, detachment has a very precise technical meaning. Not grasping and not pushing away. So how can we actually do this? How can we put this into practice? Well, we just have to start looking. So we're going to do a round of meditation here. We're going to enter choiceless awareness as we've trained to do. I'm not going to give you a guided instructions for this one. Start with concentration. Go through the six fields until you arrive at spacious awareness. And you become aware of when thoughts, but particularly thoughts that are linked with desire and aversion, arise. 
and you let them self-liberate. You don't now go judge them. Oh, I shouldn't be having that thought. No. You just let them self-liberate. And as they self-liberate, as the, if you like, the energy of that desire, that aversion subsides, oh, there's an opportunity to glimpse this universal sameness. Our mind isn't colored by like or dislike. It's not a permanent lifestyle, it's a practice. You'll be able to find your likes and dislikes after the practice. I guarantee you. They'll come back, you won't have any problem of sorting out the genetic tomatoes from the, uh, you know, organic ones. So, don't be afraid to let that go just for the space of this practice, okay? So, uh, you might remember this image of the movie... And as things are rising, and especially in this space when you've detected a desire or aversion, those are now grist for your mill. You should be grateful that they're rising. Aha! Chance to do profound practice. So they arise. Oh, thank you. Let me let that desire for the meditation end. Let me let that thought go along with the desire. And then we return to this space. And now, can you see it's all light form? Can you see just one thing as a light form? And be open to this teaching of universal sameness. Yes, Sean? You may not want to go into this, but we've already established there's no doer who makes choices. So who's letting go of the desires and the uh, <laughs> Well, you see, again, we don't want to confuse the absolute with the relative. <laughs> more relative, so I assume that's what you... Yeah, I want you to say more about that. Well, at an absolute level, there is no doer. But deluded people believe there's a doer. That's the definition of being deluded. So if a deluded person comes to a teacher and says, you know, I'm deluded, what should I do? It doesn't really do any good for the teacher usually to say, well, there's no one in there to do anything. So, okay, how's that helpful to me? I still believe I'm a doer in here. So a more skillful way to handle that is to say, okay, you believe there's a doer. Why don't you do this and this and this? And these practices will show you there is no doer. So it's a little judo trick, you know what I mean? Now, occasionally, somebody is really ripe and ready, and they come and say, you know, what should I do? And the teacher can say, there is no doer. And, you know, if they're really ripe and ready, they'll get it right there, and that'll be, that'll be it. But that's very, very rare. Most of the time, it's trying to see where people are coming from, and then work with that. Or Ananda Moyamai has a nice way of putting it. She says, you know, uh, someone who falls down on the floor uses the floor to push themselves back up. So we're stuck in delusion, so we have to work with the material of delusion to get out of delusion. I don't know if that's helpful or not. I think so, yeah. Okay. Yes? Um, I'd like you to say a little bit more about specifics of using this practice like the food. Uh-huh. Because we talked about the tomatoes. Let's right. say you have, you see liver. Right. I don't like liver. So, because <laughs> so, I know some people do, so I've got that whole message, you know, it's just about my personal desires. So, uh, with, and, and no awareness, I might go, oh, yuck, yuck, liver, I don't want that. But just to at least be aware that I am a, have an aversion to it. Right. And then I choose to eat it or not, which I always choose not to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you know you have an aversion to it? <laughs> I could 
choose also to eat it and see what happens. So yes. you're saying it's just being aware of it and then aware that you're making a choice that it's a desire of aversion. Yes, that's the very first step. Now, you may want to do as a practice, try eating the liver. This can become a practice because you want to really look into what's at the bottom of this aversion and how much of this aversion is projected onto the liver. Like you said, you look at the liver and you go, ooh, that's yicky, right? So is liver really yicky? Or is that you are projecting onto liver that it's yicky? And then experimenting can bring this out and make it clear to you. For instance, I'll give you a very good example from my own life, and I think it's common for a lot of people anyway. I grew up before sushi was you know, popular in this country. And I can remember going to the first Japanese restaurant that had, it wasn't actually sushi, it was sashimi, you know, the raw fish. And just slams of it on the plate, not all rolled up in a seaweed thing. So... I looked at it, and I was with a bunch of friends of mine, and I was horrified, but I had to eat it because of peer pressure, you know. And so I did. I picked it up in a slimy, you know, raw, I couldn't believe it, put it in my mouth. Well, it turns out I love sushi. Now, you see, so here's an example of it's showing you the impermanence of that evaluation, what I thought was yuki has transformed into something that's delightful. So what does that tell me about my judgments? And then if I can translate that message into other kinds of judgments I make, what does it tell me about them? So maybe if that's true of sushi, maybe it's true of people. I meet somebody I really don't like, you know? And then maybe I'm, you know, thrown together with them in a car ride or something and I get to talk to them and I, oh... You know, they're not so bad, and maybe they even become a friend. Or the opposite can happen. I, I have a friend that I'm really, you know, fond of. We have a long-term relation for years, and then something happens, and they become an enemy. So, again, it's a lesson in the impermanence, but now it's not the impermanence of the substance of things, but it's in the impermanence of our judgments and our views and all that. Because the food is just, like you said, like people, like anything, and that yeah. goes back to the sameness thing. Right, and food is a very good place to start. I mean, people are much more complicated. So, I know I think practices around food are really great because they're simple, they're precise, the kinds of desires and aversions you're working with usually aren't, you know, life-shaking ones. They're, you can handle them and you can experiment and you can hold your nose and eat the sushi and, you know, stuff like that. So, check it out. Okay, so moving forward, we'll do two rounds contemplating the universal sameness of everything and continue to do this through lunch. Remember the key to discovering universal sameness is to practice detachment from desire and aversion and lunch and many meals are very good uh, very good opportunity to watch desire and aversion as we've been talking about. So don't think of the lunch and the dinner time as a break from our practice. It's a chance to practice kinds of desire and aversion for tastes and smells that we don't get a chance to practice at sitting here in the meditation hall. Yes? Um, I happen to know we're having brownies for lunch. You happen to know we're having brownies for lunch? Well, that would be good practice. Don't eat the brownies. See if you resist the brownies. (laughs) 
kitchen and I went for a walk right after I ate my lunch. And I went into a panic when I came back. I thought, oh, I missed the brownie. <laughs> <laughs> I even broke my silence and asked Mark, where the brownies There's the root of suffering right there. Right in the brownies. You see the whole mechanism of samsara. I give you one thing you can do with the brownies if you want to try this practice. Eat your brownie, really enjoy your brownie, do it all very mindfully, and see how long the pleasure of having the brownie lasts after you've finished. I like that practice. You like that practice. <laughs> see if you can't get some insight into the fact that even these uh, worldly pleasures and stuff are ephemeral, transient, and they'll pass away. So, let's go now. Ooh la la, class. Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. So, let's continue our discussion about trying to discover universal sameness. Lorena. Um, I like this practice. Um, it's the first time I've ever self-liberated desire and aversion. Mm. I mean, maybe you've given that instructions before, but I've never done it or never got it. But um, it was different than self-liberating thought. Mm-hmm. Because thoughts, you know, they're kind of like your little friends or something. And then the desire and aversion, it's a little more closer to the bone. And uh-huh. it's more, um, uh, you know, more like yourself. And it was, a, it, was kind of, it was kind of hard because it feels like you're sort of giving up your personality or your individuality. And that's what I felt like. I felt like I was giving away pieces of myself. Uh-huh. And... Um, I can see how, yeah, you know, when, if you did that, you, you know, you'd be the same as before. I mean, it, it really it made sense to me. Uh-huh. 
when you surrendered a, a specific desire or aversion, did another one come back? More of them? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't worry about too much about losing your personality, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Maura. I noticed that um, in the aversion, it seemed a little bit different than the clinging, because it seemed like there had to be, at least my experience, had to be like a really allowing of it to be there before it's all liberated. Allowing the, the aversion? Yeah. Yeah. Because it was usually something about myself that I didn't like. Mm. Um, and or that I thought was wrong or bad or just right, right, whatever. Right. And just to, um, there seemed to be this first step point. Oh, yeah, that's there. That's arisen. Yes. Excellent. Very astute. And this is something quite subtle, actually. Most people don't notice. Before you can allow anything to self-liberate, you have to be aware that it is there in the first place. And so if you have a subtle aversion to aversion, let's say, and you don't want to acknowledge it, and when aversion arises, you try to push it away or something, you're not giving it a chance to be there in order to self-liberate. It never gets to really express itself, we might say. So that's a very important thing. And not just a little aversion, but as we go uh, through the practice and as we go through life, the big aversions, emotions, can arise, which we don't want to be there. And that's one of the ways we get into self-conflict and one of the primary sources of our suffering. We don't like those aspects of our self, quote-unquote, and so we're constantly at war with it. and We won't let them be. So half the practice is letting it be and then letting it self-liberate. But you have to let it be before you can let it self-liberate. But it's still about not acting. There's a difference on letting the emotion, the aversion, the desire be. Let it arise, let it express itself, and let itself liberate, and then acting on it. So this is not an excuse for, you know, letting it all hang out. And, but that's the way I felt. I just had to punch it in the nose because, you know, I've got to be authentic or something. So our practice is uh, circumscribed by our moral precepts and whatnot. But that's a circle of safety. Within that circle, you see, we can let all kinds of things, emotions, thoughts, whatever, arise and self-liberate. Yeah. Um, there's a story around the brownie that I won't go into. But you, you can go into the brownie because that's a nice segue. The next thing I was going to ask is, did anybody learn anything from the brownies or did you just pig out? Well, I learned a lot. Good. So go ahead. So I picked up a brownie and I put it on a white paper napkin and set it where I was going to sit down with something made. And it was just sitting there all by itself. And I just really had a visual thing with it. So I ate and then I decided to leave it there. I went outside and decided to leave it there. But how could you eat it and then stop? That's why I ate my dinner on lunch. Oh, I see. Okay. I left the brownie on the napkin. It was a little bit of a, wow, I wonder if I just leave it there. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to make up this whole story around the brownie. Should I leave it? Should I not leave it? Should I have? Should I just, you know. So finally I let go of that and I just came inside and sat down in the corner and kind of did what you're talking about with decision. Let's see what happens here. A little this, a little that. And, finally, and then I was going to still leave it there, and I thought, well, that will cause maybe genes some suffering, because he'll come across this 
browning on a paper napkin. Everyone's going, why is this here? You know, so I thought, well, that's not good. So all of a sudden, like I said, the decision just happened. I'm going to eat half of it. And I was so disappointed. I was desiring the memory of the brownie in May. This was not that brownie. Wow. So that was great. I mean, it's like, oh, well, I could hardly finish it. So now I'm lost, like, now I know it was attached to the memory of the brownie made. So now when I see a brownie, it's like, well... Boy, that is very astute. That's wonderful observation. A close, clear, undistracted observation. And it's also wonderful how things that we enjoy, an expectation gets set up, and then there's a disappointment if it isn't fulfilled. And it's, it's just a very clear, small but very clear example of how that mechanism works. That's great. And so the next time you serve the brownies here, give it to me. If you don't want to eat it, I'll take it. I didn't have any brownies in May. <laughs> Who else learned from? Yeah. Yes, I was disappointed in them brownies too. <laughs> I like a flat, crisper brownie. <laughs> These are all gooey. I don't know if they melted some kind of too much chocolate stuff. They're kind of messy. And I noticed that I had that aversion, but I got one, a big, the biggest one. <laughs> After all, it's retreat, it's not much. <laughs> So, uh, what I realized as I ate my brownie anyway, was uh, it, it was pretty good, but there was that, that, that aversion, really, that aversion is, um, it's, it's self-grasping at this idea of an individual Bill Hammond. Because Bill Hammond really likes a flat, crisp. <laughs> it's very interesting. If you go look to see what your identity is made of, <laughs> you find that it's made of brownies and you know specific house you like or color or you know whatever. All that is part of it, and all that's ephemeral. All that can change. From I'm somebody who hates sushi to I'm somebody who loves sushi. What happened there? So very interesting. Jim. Uh, interesting. When I, I made myself look at it for a couple of minutes, so I had to stay off my desire. And um, so I'm sort of feeling the desire. And then there's, then most my mind sort of kicked into this like, oh, the pain of desire in the world. Oh, desire is so hard. And thought, I'm overlaying this other kind of judgment about desire. But I made it something very different. Like there was just the want for the brownie. From this whole drama about, oh, woe is me and my desire. <laughs> and I go, wait a minute. And then I just looked at it and go, yeah, there's a sensation of want. And it, it was fine. It, it was still there. And I still wanted it. But there's this cycle. This, is, this sensation actually makes life sort of interesting. Ah. I mean, it was like, you know, this desire is really fine. Well, and if you noticed, or you could do it again, notice the suffering does not actually come from the desire. 
It comes from the story that I can't get what I desire. Woe is me. The drama that builds up around it. And you can also see how a little desire, when a thought gets a hold of it, works it right back into the story of I. That's how the story of I keeps going. And that's how desire and aversion keep that wheel turning. And the minute that one's gone, another desire rises and the wheel turns more, the story gets more elaborated, and there you go, another little chain in the link of samsara. You get to view how it actually works right there. Excellent. Yes? I really like the brownie. I didn't take a very big one because like, I didn't want to eat a lot of chocolate because sometimes that doesn't agree with me. So, and it was absolutely perfect. It was like a perfect moment. The sky, the sun and sky, oh my God. And the, and the um, brownie was just like, it was just like, you know, I didn't have any expectations. So it was just like perfect. And I had the raspberry green tea and that was perfect. Oh. The little honey in it. And the little raccoons playing there. Oh, <laughs> wow. Now, there's a wonderful example about, you know, what is good and what is bad. It's a relative judgment. She's in, in paradise. He's sort of putting up with it. Right? <laughs> God, I'm going to eat this gooey brownie. Well, I'll take a chance. <laughs> okay. I have to tell you my story, and that is I sat down with the brownie, and I took a bite of it, and I, you know, chewed it and then swallowed it. And then I timed how long that ecstasy of the lasted. I didn't have my watch with me, but I counted, you know, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three, one thousand, and so forth. And it's a curve, you know, you eat it and then you're at the peak and then it starts to curve off and it's pretty steep and then it, the slope goes more gently. So right about there is 27 seconds. You know, and that's the point where I really needed another bite because it's about to disappear. So I get another bite, shh, and it goes up like that again. Another bite goes up like that again. So each time is about 27 seconds. So then I waited, and I thought, okay, now I'm going to let it completely disappear. So I got the top there, swallowed the brownie. Oh, 27 seconds. It keeps going, going, going. 47 seconds to the time it, like, completely disappeared. I thought, but then I realized by swishing my tongue around, I could dig out the little pieces of brownie for my teeth, and I could get another 16 seconds out of it, see? The total pleasure, for me, I'm sure it'll be different, you know, for different people. The total pleasure was, let's see, 47 and 16. What is that? A minute and three? Is that right? A minute and three seconds? So the total pleasure from one bite of brownie was a minute and three seconds. Now, then somebody could calculate this if you want. Let's say there are ten bites to a brownie. How many brownies would you have to eat to maintain this pleasure for 16 hours a day? Can you do that in your head quickly? Uh, 96 brownies every day. So, so number... <laughs> What was that? It's feasible? <laughs> well, this is an alternative to enlightenment. If you want to have permanent abiding happiness during your waking life anyway, 96 brownies a day. But you get sick of them after a while. Ah, 
there's the rub. I knew it. There was some reason it wouldn't work. That's right. You might, you might get sick of them after a while. It would be the same taste. <laughs> the same taste, right? <laughs> anyway. But it is very interesting to watch any kind of pleasure that you get from worldly things and see how long it actually lasts. Okay. Let's uh, move on here. Now, our Guru Stone has something else to show us. And here's what uh, Jesus says to direct us to this. I am the light that is above them all. I am the all. The all came forth from me, and the all attained to me. Cleave a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. Now, you know, whenever I run across a teaching like this, I like to actually act it out. So, I go and I lift up my Guru Stone. I don't see Jesus. Why don't you all try this now? Anybody find Jesus? I like looking for a leprechaun. So why would he say that? Well, yeah. everything's the same. The stone's Jesus, and Jesus is the stone. Well, but not that that isn't true, but that's not what he's saying. He says, very specifically, lift up the stone and you'll find me there. We have to be careful. These are precise instructions here. Lift up the stone and you'll find me there. Yes? Could the stone represent some kind of obstacle? Well, it could represent some kind of obstacle. It depends on you know, how you're viewing the stone. But maybe the stone represents a pointer. Let me give you a clue. I'm going to ring this gong, and I want you to listen to it with an undistracted mind, and I want you to listen to the whole sound that it makes, the whole continuous thing until it, it dies away like that curve of taste, okay? So what does the sound indicate besides itself? Is it pointing to something? Yes, what? you call that in relation to sound? Silence. Silence. Let me try it again. Listen. 
Ask yourself, does the sound take you to silence? Now, listen to what the Upanishads say about this. There are two ways of contemplating Brahman, in sound and in silence. By sound, we go to silence. The sound of Brahman is Om. With Om, we go to the end, the silence of Brahman. The end is immortality, union, peace. Now again, that's something you might read if you were reading the Upanishads for some comparative religion class at the U of O or something, and you might say, hmm, well, that's kind of interesting, and go on. But if you're a spiritual seeker and you have curiosity, <coughs> you say, what does this mean? This is telling me something about the whole practice of using the mantra Om. Why do people use the mantra Om? Well, there are many reasons. A lot of them is to give you an object to focus on. But this is uh, giving you a higher purpose if you like, something more profound than just concentrating your attention. Let's try one together communal ohm, and we'll do just one, and do it until it runs completely out, even if you're the last one. Once it runs completely out, don't start vocalizing another one. Don't even do it in your head. Just try to settle into that space of undistracted attention, okay? You ready? Here we go. Beautiful, isn't it? The silence. So this is a, actually a practice. A practice to bring us to silence, to, to bring us, as Clavon said it perfectly, the absence of the sound. So maybe Jesus meant when you pick up the stone, there I am, maybe Jesus is as much the absence of the stone as Jesus is the stone. So, just the way sound leads us to silence, objects lead us to empty space. Not emptiness like the Buddhists use it, but the absence of the object. <clears throat> okay, let's try one other example. Close your eyes and... Name in your mind, mentally, name your guru stone. 
and allow the thought, the name, to arise and then allow it to just self-liberate. Let's try it one more time. Make sure you allow the name stone to self-liberate without a trace. So it's almost like you have forgotten it. So open your eyes. When the name arises and then is allowed to self-liberate without a trace, what's left? Same thing as everything else left. Well, what would you what would you say in this case? Space. Space. That's not wrong or anything. Well, there's a more precise designation. How about the nameless? There's the name, and then when the name disappears, we're left with the nameless. Here's what uh, Lao Tzu, the founder of Taoism, has to say about this. These two, the named and the nameless, are the same, but diverge in name as they issue forth. Being the same, they are called mysteries, mystery upon mystery the gateway of the manifold secrets. The name and the nameless. At first they're indistinguishable. When they issue forth, we distinguish them. We make a distinction between them. But if we could realize that the name that came out of the nameless and returns to the nameless is the same, ah, then we have the gateway to the mystery. The mystery of mysteries. You see how these teachings uh, interlink here? You know, they pick a little different aspect of our experience to focus on, but it's all leading back to Rome. All roads lead to Rome. All phenomena lead back to the source. They arise from that nameless, silent, empty, spacious source, and they return to that empty, silent, nameless, spacious source. So in that sense, all phenomena are our gurus literally leading us back. If we want to anthropomorphize a little bit, we say, they arise, they say, this way, this way, follow me, and they dive back, like dolphins, you know, jumping and diving out of the sea. How do dolphins go squeak, squeak? Can anybody make a dolphin sound? Anybody listen to those Free Willy movies? Ooh. Oh, very good, that's it, yeah. Excellent. He speaks dolphin. Wow. That's right. They arrive and say, come, come follow me. And we're sitting on the boat saying, oh, aren't they pretty? Look at that. Nobody's jumping in following them. What would happen if we jumped in and just followed one, just one of these myriad dolphins, these rainbow fish, as Lady Soiko calls them. So here's what uh, Suzuki Roshi says. True being comes out of nothingness, moment after moment. Nothingness is always there, and from it everything appears. 
Right? True being comes out of non-being, if we like. And non-being is always there. That's the ground underlying everything. Same teaching, different tradition. And remember we heard Rumi say, form was born from speech and then died. It took its wave back to the sea. Form comes out of formlessness. Then it returns, for unto him we are returning. Isn't that the same teaching? So this is what we want to explore this afternoon. Our Guru Stone and everything else. All the phenomena that make up the Guru Stone and make up our experience, each one of them is arising out of this groundless ground and returning to this groundless ground. And we want to just see if we can start to follow them in a very gentle way. We have a quiet, undistracted mind and we watch them, we appreciate them, we enjoy them and every once in a while one of them particularly grabs our attention. The especially colored dolphin, the one that's close to us, right there, right at us. Jump on its back and just ride it right into the ocean. See what happens. Okay? Now, for this we're going to uh, do one round of formal meditation and then we're going to go outside where there are lots of phenomena arising and returning to the formless. And so you're on your own again for practice. Yes, Megan? Any phenomena including mental thoughts? Including mental thoughts. Thank you very much. Very much so. The name takes us to the nameless. If you allow the thought to self-liberate without a trace all the way. Because if you allow the thought to start to go like that curve of the taste of the brownie and it gets down to 27 seconds and you think, well, what's happening to that thought? Now you're generating more thoughts and you'll miss that thought disappearing without a trace. You have to go the whole 47 seconds. Not just quit it at 27 when it gets very faint, but let it go all the way. Okay? Okay, here we go. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and instructions.